0: being on the uh, Inquisitive Introvert Podcast. I wanted to interview you because your writing has appeared in a, a lot of notable literary outlets, New York Times, New Yorker, and most recently you released your debut novel, Burning and bed is Burning. Sorry about that. <laughs> so that <worries>. I just, <laughs> So I kind of just wanted to get a little bit of your story, a little bit about your background and why you chose to write this book. So I guess my first question is, why do you do what you do?
1: That's a great question. I started writing when I deferred a year between uh, high school and college. I grew up in New York City, and I knew that I wanted to go to Columbia College, Columbia University, which is also in New York. And I went, I didn't want to just go from high school and and head uptown and and go to college. So I, I asked Columbia if they would let me defer a year. And they did. And I spent six months teaching English in in Thailand and then six months living in Paris and uh, theoretically translating for a magazine, but really just sort of hanging out. And the idea was that Thailand was going to be like this rough, difficult time where I was going to need to you know, live without everything I'd been accustomed to. And then Paris would be a sort of reward for myself where I'd work. And pay for whatever small apartment I could get, etc. But the opposite happened. And the six months in Thailand were extraordinary and easy. And everybody took care of me. I was living with a family and teaching at a local school. And I had the most wonderful food every day and made fantastic friends. And then after that, I showed up in Paris without knowing anybody. And I was only 18. It was the loneliest, most difficult time I, I, I had ever experienced up until that point. And the only two things that made time pass more quickly and and less painfully or difficultly, were uh, drinking and writing. I realized that one was was far more sustainable than the other. So I, I spent hours and hours just sort of writing about what I saw and what I did and thoughts I had and, you know, different attitudes about family and friends and just sort of ideas that had always been percolating in, in my subconscious or conscious or whatever it was. But I started writing down on paper and then turn them into stories. And that continued where I essentially went back to Columbia and spent four years reading a whole lot of books and writing essays and writing short stories and all that. And the, the work I, I did for class all felt like work. I had to you know get myself through each essay and force myself to finish some of the novels. But all the the fiction writing I did was just pleasure. It was an outlet and enjoyable for me. So the, the prospects of potentially making a career doing it was something that I, I couldn't avoid. So I, I graduated from Columbia. I tried to write a novel. I, I tutored to, to pay the bills, and I wrote a terrible novel, but it was good enough <laughs> to get me into the uh, Johns Hopkins MFA program where I was lucky enough not only to study with Alice McDermott, who is a a wonderful writer, but a a true genius teacher. But also, I was lucky enough to get a stipend there. So all I needed to do was teach a couple classes at Johns Hopkins and write. And it was when I turned myself into the, the type of writer who saw writing not as a thing to do instead of drinking, a job where you do it every day. And I made myself sit down for a certain number of hours and write a certain number of words. Um, And then when I came back to New York after that, I saw how important it was to get a day job of some kind and make sure I carved out enough time in my life to write on the side. So that's what I did. I've been teaching middle school English part-time for a decade now, tutoring to make ends meet where the, the teaching wasn't enough to pay you know, my half the rent with my then girlfriend, now wife, and writing as, as many minutes of every day as I could.
0: Wow, wow. And Brian, I, I mentioned earlier, your, your writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and several other you know, notable media outlets. How did you get their attention? Like, how, how did that even come about?
1: It's, it's a great question. And it's a question that is important in this world where you have tons of people graduating with creative writing aspirations from high school or college or grad school and are looking for ways to differentiate themselves from the you know, thousands and thousands of others. And the answer is a combination of very, very small ins and blind submissions. So I find that if you submit, but before you have a resume, and you submit to random submission email addresses, whether it's a you know to a random editor at The Times or to The New Yorker or wherever else, it hardly ever gets read. It ends up in the hands of an intern who chooses one of a, a thousand submissions and passes it along to an editor, and often that editor doesn't take it seriously or turns it down. But if you can get somebody's personal email address and have any kind of connection at all initially, then your emails really do get read. If, if you write a short, succinct, polite email saying, I've been a fan of the, the New Yorkers for my entire life. I've written this comedy piece. Will you, do you mind taking a look? And for the most part, people really do take a look. So it's a a two-pronged attack. The first one is to rack your brain and any friend you've ever had and any internet group or Facebook something or Twitter or anything to try to find any kind of somewhat more personal connection with an editor at any of these places, whether it's the New York Times, the New Yorker, or you know more local blogs or newspapers or magazines or whatever it is, and you know in my case, it was that um my wife's friend's sister was uh <laughs> interning with somebody who knew the a New Yorker editor and I begged for the email address. I sent a blind email. Uh, she said, "No, this this isn't. Uh, you know, I liked it, but I don't. I don't think it's a good fit. But try me with the next one." And after I tried three or four times, the fifth time they said, "Sounds good. Let's you'll we'll, we'll publish it." And then once you have a couple clips or a couple things on your resume that differentiate you from everybody else, then you can start submitting blind, and that's. That's how I ended up getting um, my literary agent. I developed a good enough resume that between my uh, MFA and the publications that you mentioned, you know, an agent would be willing to take a look at the first 10 or 20 or 50 pages of my manuscript. And after a few passed on me, one said, I think this is great. Let's try to get it in shape to
0: sell it. Wow. So persistence pays off. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really do find
1: the people who have made it in the arts, I, I live in New York City, and a lot of mm-hmm. my friends, you know, a, a decade ago started out in the arts, and I, I found that the, the people who've made it need a an entry-level threshold of talent and ability, but there are tons of people with that modicum, or, or least amount possible, and still make it who don't make it. And and there are a lot of people who are a lot more talented than I am who have had a lot of their work turned down. And it's because they didn't establish a life for themselves where they could continue to do their art but not rely on their art for their economic well-being. The friends of mine who have found a way to break through have been the ones who have the day job, who create a separate way to not worry about their art producing revenue and then take as many minutes otherwise just to keep on writing and writing and writing. And uh, that was certainly the case for me.
0: Sure. Now, Brian, I, I want to move move on to your book. I love it. Um, I used to live in New York. I oh, lived in New York for so four years. Oh, yes. And it is just, um, I didn't live in Brooklyn. I lived in uh, uptown Harlem, but I had an internship out in Brooklyn. So I spent a lot of time there. And as you know, as a native New Yorker, Brooklyn is a huge place. And it's a variety Absolutely. of different cultures and languages and just so much there. And I think your book really captured that and sort of the the conflict that's sort of going on in that borough. So I guess if, for those who haven't read it yet, and, and will read it after after this interview is, if you could provide a brief synopsis of the book, and what inspired you to write it?
1: Absolutely. Because one very much leads to the other. I was living with my then girlfriend in a Brooklyn neighborhood called Clinton Hill, which was um, just becoming uh, too expensive for us to look to buy. And, you know, we we could afford a, a studio or maybe a one bedroom, but we were looking to have a family. And we were just Scouting around in neighborhoods that we didn't know very well, seeing where we could still commute into Manhattan, you know, for me to teach and for my wife to work and where we could afford to buy a place with a little bit more space. And we very quickly saw that Bed-Stuy was beautiful. I didn't know anything about the neighborhood, but... There are these old stones from the 1880s and 90s and tree-lined streets. And, uh, you know, of course, there, there are some less magnificent sort of areas, but we... Kept on looking and we were just amazed. I came into this conversation and this life completely naive, embarrassingly so, where I moved in and I'm like, oh, this is a pretty place to live. Let's do it. And my wife and I realized, you know, we weren't surprised that it was a a black neighborhood, but we we moved in and then started to understand a lot of the repercussions of, of our moving into the neighborhood. We were the first non black family on the block in decades and decades. And we were noticing a rapid change, where if we moved in seven, eight years ago, we were still warned by, you know, our friends, are you sure it's safe, you know, which is just, just racism. Like, it's, it's nothing, nothing more than that. But people have heard their stories. And even police, when we would get out of the subway, would say, you know, are you sure you're in the right neighborhood? And I, that coincided with my becoming real good friends with the other families in my block, especially after we had our first son families were in our house all the time. We were in their houses and we got to know them less as anonymous neighbors and, and more as, as true neighbors and friends. And I started to be able to understand the world of bed a little bit better and the people whom my presence helped in some financial and superficial ways where, you know, if you own a house on uh, in, in this neighborhood now, because there's a lot more demand from people from white people and and other people coming from Manhattan, the first wave of gentrifiers tend to be more more affluent blacks, but the white wave follows and it means that real estate values go up and more amenities arrive and there's more money uh, for the school system and for the libraries. But on the other side of that, there are lifelong renters who are displaced because just as the home values rise, the uh, rents rise as well. People have spent their entire life in in these communities where their family have been for generations, where all their friends are, all of a sudden are forced out into, you know, Brownsville or East New York or Queens or the Bronx, which can be lovely neighborhoods, but it's not where they grew up. I just started to be more aware of the consequences that my arriving in the neighborhood and people like me arriving in the neighborhood wrought. About that same time also was before Police Commissioner Bratton took over. It was, it was Police Commissioner Kelly then, who was a Big proponent of stop, question, and frisk policies, and like the politics of all that are complicated, and and people argue <laughs> on both sides whether stop and frisk works to reduce violent crime and to get guns off the streets. But the lived experience of it was really horrible, where three days out of five, there were kids about the age of my eighth graders whom I taught on my way to school. I'd see them handcuffed and pushed against the subway grate on the way down to take the subway to go to Manhattan every day. And just like the kids were mortified and humiliated. The police seemed to be stoically doing their job, but they weren't enjoying it. And the commuters for whom this was theoretically done were just you know, impotent to, to help and where it's just such an unpleasant way to, to live our lives. So I started thinking about what would happen if tensions ratcheted up a little bit more, if if there was a police shooting of, of one of these kids or if things got out of hand. And this was before the the riots outside of St. Louis and in Baltimore and Cleveland. But it, it was just clear that there was something in the air. And I my my novel takes place in one frantic, hectic, horrible day where... A riot is sparked ends up descending on the white gentrifying family's home for a lot of both logical and illogical reasons and it goes from character to character from all their perspectives from the white gentrifying man and his girlfriend, the uh, nanny who takes care of their kids, the local teenagers, neighbors, the police commissioner himself, et etc because I wanted to try to imagine this day through all of their experiences. I tried to, you know, let the novel be some kind of exercise in empathy as as well as a thriller if possible and try to imagine the way people would act in this situation.
0: Like I said, Ryan, it, it is a very colorful, compact intense read, but it's a great read. And I recommend everyone go out there and buy *Bedsides Size Burning. And I know this might be too soon to ask, Brian, because you just released this book early July, right? Mid-early July.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. The
0: uh, what's next for you? You've done a lot. You wrote for the New York Times. You <laughs> released this novel. You also are yeah. co-founder of Teachers That Tutor. What's on your plate next? So
1: I was lucky enough to be offered a second contract with Atria, my imprint at Simon and Schuster, just as this first novel was coming out. So I'm I'm hard at work on the second one. It's a little bit different. I've been my article in the New York Times, at least the the one you're referring to is uh, it details the last year and a half or so of my life where I've been dealing with what was an undiagnosable neurological condition where I was, and still, I'm still symptomatic, but for about a year and a half, I was irritatingly dizzy. I I couldn't get out of bed for a month or so. I couldn't be alone with my kids for eight months. I, I couldn't leave the house for a lot of it because I was too dizzy to... Sort of be a functioning human being. And people had no idea why. And I, I saw lots and lots of doctors, you know, the best specialists in New York. And after I wrote this article for the Times, I got literally thousands of responses saying that, you know, they've been experiencing certain types of dizziness and people didn't believe them, or I needed to try acupuncture, or I needed to try a chiropractor. So I, I lost a year and a half of, of my life to trying various techniques and, and medications. Finally, I, at the Mayo Clinic, I was diagnosed with a specific kind of uh, dizzy disorder, and I'm on uh, a bunch of medications for that now. But the, the next book will be about another novel, a fictional account from the perspective of the wife of somebody who is suffering with comparable condition, half that and half how that is similar and different from living in Trump's America today. So different types of struggles and attempts to overcome them is what the next book will be about.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Platt. So you have accomplished so much. And like I said, I, I absolutely loved the book. It was it was amazing, very detailed, very colorful, um, as I mentioned before. And I just really look forward to more of your reading. This was, this was awesome. I hope you had a great time.
1: I really enjoyed talking mm-hmm. to you. Your questions were fantastic, and I, uh, I really, really enjoyed this. So thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Oh, no problem. Thanks a lot, uh, Mr. Plattson. We'll Absolutely. talk soon.
1: Absolutely. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.